Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am your host, Anthony Caldellis. Today we're going to talk about gender. Now, gender is often discussed as a set of norms that are somehow imposed on society, especially when we are talking about pre-modern societies. So men are expected to behave in certain ways, and they're criticized if they fall short or deviate uh, from those norms, and women likewise. In many discussions, these norms are usually taken for granted. That's something that pre-exists within a society, and people are assumed to operate within that matrix. Uh, as as if it were predefined. And some prominent theorists have even argued that it is impossible for people to escape from it, um, as it writes itself directly onto our very subjectivity. But there's a different approach, which recognizes that people can change or repurpose, uh, manipulate, or even rewrite that social script. So gender in this view is not like an iron cage, but is itself subject to human creativity. Now, obviously, today we live in an age when not only gender norms are being challenged, but also sexual orientations and even sexual identities. So we're seeing now more than ever that people have their own agency in these matters and that their identities are not necessarily predetermined by some kind of fixed social script. And moreover, even traditional gender identities can be manipulated and repurposed uh, to achieve, you know, novel goals. Uh, I remember uh, a few years ago, I think there was a a surplus of bacon uh, on the market that had to be unloaded somehow. And I remember an advertising campaign that tried to make men feel like inadequate if they weren't capable of eating large amounts of bacon on every possible food. Um, you know, are you man enough to eat bacon on this? And and we can also think of the, the gun industry today in the United States, which appeals to some kind of, you know, deficits of masculinity in order to sell its products as something that will make you a man again, right? right. So these are, these are redrawing re- on traditional norms. They're masquerading as traditional, but they result, the results are anything but traditional. So subtle little dynamics of gender played out in Byzantium as well, and I can think of no one better to discuss these than Leonora Neville, who's a professor of history at the University of Wisconsin and is now the chair of that department, and she has just published a highly accessible introduction to Byzantine gender. It's called Byzantine Gender. It's a short book. Uh, Among its virtues is that it showcases how the Byzantine, Byzantine men and women coped with they manipulated, they sometimes even subverted their society's gender norms for all that they never sought to change the fundamental system of rules in any revolutionary way. So here then is my conversation with Leonora Neville. All right. Hello, Leonora, and uh, thank you for agreeing to do this. Hi there. So you have published a book recently called Byzantine Gender. Um, it's it's short, very accessible. Uh, I think about exactly 100 pages long in a small format. And I I've been waiting for this book for for a long time um, because it very clearly explains some basic concepts and gives uh, lots of examples of what we mean when we uh, study gender and and perform gender analysis on on the materials that we have from Byzantium. 
Uh, so first, why don't um, why don't we start? Um, I'll ask you to could you explain briefly what the difference is between gender analysis and women's history? Because I I find often that you know there are books and articles that appear and they have gender in the title, but in reality, they turn out to be women's history, which I think of as something different. So maybe you want to talk about that? Sure. Women's history is the study of women and the things they did in the past. So any aspect of women's lives, women's work, women's uh, social organizations, women's uh, abilities and ranges of freedom in a society, that all falls under the, the category of women's history. When we talk about gender, we're talking about the way society defines and sets up the rules for mannish behavior and womanish behavior, what's feminine and what's masculine. And different cultures and societies can have very different ideas about what they think is natural for women and what's natural for men. And the study of how different cultures define those rules and those norms for masculinity and femininity is called the study of gender by historians. So a gender analysis of something is going to ask questions about how is this particular text or object or thing expressing this culture's idea of what it is to be a woman or what it is to be a man and how those ideas play with each other or intention. Whereas a woman's history would look at the thing to say, what can it tell us about the lives of women? So when you're reading articles that have gender in the title but turn out to really be something different, it's someone who thinks that they're talking about men and women, but they're really just studying what women did um, and right, women's right. history. And and now I should say, you've actually done both sides of this, right? And so, for example, mm -hmm. and you're very rare in this regard, so you can study... Uh, contracts in which you know women were engaged in you know legal relations with others or economic data t mm -hmm. tax returns things like that where where we get information about what women were doing or could do or what was done to them but that's something very different from gender analysis where do we look to find these gender norms that define masculinity and femininity well it's really a matter of asking questions of our sources that get us to try to peel back what are their expectations and ideals and what are they actually saying. So when you interrogate something like a contract right, between people, um, it was very normal for women to say when they're buying something, um, I'm not doing this because I've been tricked and I'm not doing this because I've been deceived and I'm not doing this because I'm a silly woman. Right. Um, that's something that you could say for women's history. Oh, yeah, they had to say that they weren't acting like women. But when you turn to the gender analysis of that document, you ask, well, why would being a woman mean that you couldn't sign a sale? Right. Why could what about being female meant that you couldn't sell your land? And then you start thinking about that in relation to everything else that we know about this culture in terms of what were the characteristics of people who had to be upstanding and had to be rational. And then you realize that rational behavior and um, the ability to hold an oath and be reliable were things that they considered to be characteristics of men. Right? And then the simplicity of a woman 
is the kind of thing that would mean that she could be deceived or she could be just too addled and silly to realize that she was selling her land when she said, I'm going to sell my land. Right? And for that reason, she'd be required in the court to say, oh, and by the way, I'm not acting like a silly woman when I'm doing this, which meant I'm acting like a rational, upstanding man who can be trusted. Right? So that's a not very clear answer in terms of a rule book for how you do a gender analysis of things. But if, when you're reading the sources, the stories and the documents that are produced by this culture, if you pay attention to what are articulated as ideals in one context, then you can use that information to sort of gradually build up a system for understanding what they valued in men and women, which you can then use as an interpretive lens to understand what any particular document is saying about gender. Right, right. I've often felt that these gender norms are sometimes operating both below the surface of our texts, like mm -hmm. on a kind of deeper substratum where, you know, our authors are taking them for granted, and also at the same time operating at the higher registers of the most sophisticated texts that we have that, mm -hmm. you know, are often doing all kinds of gender inversions and so on. Right. And And that makes it that makes gender very difficult to access because it requires close readings um, and thinking about things that aren't said and things like that. Like, for example, right. even if you just think about law, like so, mm -hmm. so women have face all these restrictions, but the Roman law and Byzantine law rarely ever explain why. Yes. Right. So like I remember in one of his laws, Constantine says that he's making some provision so that women can opt to stay at home on account of the weakness of their sex. Like he just says this, right? He, he, right. Right. Yeah. 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 So, so you have all of these texts that are either being, that don't give us what we want because they assume we all know it or right. they're doing very sophisticated things with those gender norms, um, which is something that, that we can talk about definitely. I think both texts are really useful. And you, if you read them against each other and with each other, so you have a, a fairly simple text in which all of the ideas about what makes men and women are assumed and they're not going to tell you anything. And you read those along with the very sophisticated playful texts that are doing things like gender inversions. And you can use the information you can get from both of those to try to build up your sense of what the thought is in a culture. The example of Roman law is actually really interesting because Roman law is so old that it passes through changes in ideas about what women were. So for the uh, ancient Romans, the earliest attestations of laws and protecting women and money um, had the assumption that women were really good with money and that women were going to trick the men out of their inheritances, huh. right? Huh. Um, so that's the, the BC Roman idea of women is that they were really great at that kind of financial wheeling and dealing. Um, and then the ideas about women's capabilities and natural tendencies changed uh, so that by the 4th century and the 5th century, the laws were interpreted as saying, oh, we have to restrict women's ability to do financial uh, uh, transactions because, you know, they'll just give their money away. You know, they'll just give it all to some right, church or right. give it all to charity or make a stupid loan to somebody without collateral. Right. So the same law was interpreted later as restricting women's financial capability um, because they were lousy at money. Right. Um, so that's just a really interesting shift 
And then when I, you go forward another six or seven centuries, you know that there are traditions about understanding women and money, uh, but you have to reassess what's really at play in this 10th century context or in this 12th century context. Um, so that's one of the interesting things that makes studying gender even more complicated is that some ideas of masculine and feminine behavior are really old and deep-seated and can travel for centuries, right? even up to the modern era. But there are other aspects of it which are very fairly tightly controlled in a particular society that then shift and change. Right. They're changing at the same time. And, right. And they're also in some sometimes they're quite different from the norms that we might expect. And you talk about some of these um, in the book. I, I, so I was wondering if you could mention a couple examples um, in this time relating to masculinity rather than femininity. Mm-hmm. And you, you talk about Kaminiati's. Uh, so this is a text uh, traditionally dated to the early 10th century about the capture of Thessaloniki by um, an Arab fleet, and he, and the protagonist and his family are taken captive, and he presents himself, well, maybe you should talk about this, but he presents himself in a way that might seem incredibly callous mm-hmm. to us, like he was presenting yeah. himself that way, but you explain that that's not actually what's going on, what's going on. Well, it's it's a little unclear what actually happened at the time. When he's telling the story later about the capture and destruction of his family, he presents um, the women and other people as suffering terribly. And he makes you cry as the reader, thinking about the horrible sufferings of those people. But he never says, I suffered or I was doing it. So there's this horrible scene when they're unloaded onto the beach at Crete after the captives have been carried away in ships and many of them have died in the, in the voyage and they've been suffering from terrible thirst and deprivation and the families are trying to find each other. And he describes women running around with their hair unkempt as if it'd be possible to keep your hair neat while you're piled right, into right, a slave on ship. A slave ship. But in any case, so the women were running around frantically with their hair unkempt in a state of hysteria, looking for their children and crying and imploring people for any word about their children. Um, and it's this horrible, disordered state. And he said that eventually a woman would cry until someone said that her child had died and was thrown out of the ship because it had died of starvation. Um, and then she would just weep and wail and weep and wail. So he makes this very affecting scene describing the, the frantic women looking for their children. And then four pages later, he mentions that his own child had died in the voyage. And you're suddenly realizing, my goodness, that was his son that he's describing. And so the woman who was frantically looking for her child was a description of his own wife, which begs the question, so what did he do at the beach? Now, I really doubt that he stood there impassively and didn't help his wife look for their lost child, right? I think that it's just, as a human, I think it'd be really hard to imagine the men standing back and saying, yeah, I don't feel much because I'm an upstanding Roman man and I don't have, I don't display my emotions. Right. I think he was helping. But when he came to write about it, he described himself as so completely in control of his emotions um, that he's completely removed from the scene. Right. So he's describing other people, um, not even saying it's his own wife. And later on, you figure that out. So it has a whole lot of emotional impact. It also has the ability to make him seem like he's in control and he has power over himself. And if you think about it, his city has been uh, captured. 
fight, in battle, sorry, so he's lost the military fight, his uh, family has been dispersed, they've been captured, they've all been taken into a captivity, and some of his relatives are being sold into slavery. So this guy has lost absolutely every shred of control over himself, his body, his family, his clothes, everything having to do with the physical matters of, of eating and everything else um, that he's explicit that, that people have lost. But he wants to maintain his own dignity, right? So he describes all this as things that other people suffered. And he leaves himself as the person who has this tremendous strength of character to be able to restrain his emotions in the face of tragedy. Right? So it's a way of both getting his audience to really weep and cry. And he wants to control, he wants through his power as a rhetorician and a writer that he the, the, has the power and the control to make you, the reader, weep. Right. So we watching this and and seeing the scene that he paints for us feel emotion, which he himself has the strength not to feel. Um, So that's a text where when you read it through and you're trying to think what's going on with this guy emotionally. Right. And then you get some kind of clue from some other text that, oh, people of this era thought that men were supposed to control their emotions. All right. Then that's the key that makes the whole thing start to make sense. Right? And the more you pay attention to ideas of how it's okay for women to cry when they're in distress. And what are the things that they do when they're distressed? Well, they get their hair messed up, right? Once you know that, then you can read this text from that gender point of view, and it's much more revelatory about what he's trying to do as trying to make himself look like a decent guy, yeah. uh, even though he's such a wimp that you know he lost his family and his city. Yeah, I, I mean... the it's really striking. I think he mentions the the death of his child in a like a subordinate clause, just kind of mm-hmm. as something in passing. But like knowing that you would then go and you know fill in the the blanks and realize right. what what he's been through. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember having a similar reaction when I was reading uh, a letter by the patriarch Photius. Uh, this is in the ninth century, and he's trying to console an acquaintance f- for the death of a child. Mm-hmm. And it struck me as quite cold and callous at the time. Yeah. Like the arguments he were making, he was making were all these very sort of intellectual arguments and how you shouldn't feel anything and, and yeah. very cold and removed. And I realized, you know, later that my reaction was actually shaped by the fact that I had been reading Tselos a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an 11th century intellectual who actually often depicts himself in tears and you know over the top he has this kind of feminine persona that he talks about even in those terms and i i had thought that that was normal later i realized pseudos is not normal at all (laughs) not normal (laughs) yeah yeah and uh so yeah i i had i had been unfair to focius and all that i thought like how Mm -hmm. cold they are you know callous um well let's talk a little bit about that that is that what sorts of sort of gender inversions or modulations go on in some of the more you know sort of, uh, high style or highfalutin literature that we have from Byzantium um, where so, so I mean would you would you yeah. say that the, the following is kind of true in the sense that w- when we're dealing with panegyrical texts that is texts that are designed to praise someone often after they've died we mm-hmm. tend to find the more normal the gender norms expressed there because you want the person mm-hmm. to look like right they they were the right kind of woman and the right kind of man 
Whereas in historiography, we very often find the opposite of the norm, that is people being mm-hmm. criticized for deviating from these norms. Right. Right, so that you, you end up with this kind of split image of, of the society. Absolutely. Uh, I think in things like saints' lives and those panegyrical texts, texts that are designed to praise, you're going to praise people so that they look good, right? And whatever, that's how you can tell what the society thinks looks good. So it looks good for a man and looks good for a woman. Whereas in other texts like histories, well, that's part of the job of a history writer in this tradition was to let the audience know who is acting properly and who is acting badly so that we can assess sort of the moral causes of the problems as well as, as understand what simply happened. So it's very common if you have a character that the historian thinks is doing a bad job, the way that they show that that character is doing a bad job is to depict a man is acting like a woman or a woman is acting like a man. And that's a way of, it's, it's character assassination, but it, it lets the, per- the audience know that this person isn't doing it right. They're not behaving properly. And then make the moral connection between not behaving properly and losing the war or having some problems. Um, some of the historians have more clear causal links than others, um, so that, that varies by author. Um, but there's the classic case of Procopius talking about Justinian and Theodora and wanting the, his audience to realize that the emperor Justinian from the 6th century was a lousy, horrible emperor. And the way that he does this is when they're faced with riots and rebellions, he has Justinian's wife tell him what to do. And Justinian is cowed by her. She makes a big heroic speech in which she acts like a man, being determined and strong and talking about bravery and the importance of clinging to empire, which then shames Justinian and the other men um, because they've been acting like cowards and they've been acting like weak women who want to run away. And so, of course, they get their strength together and they say, yes, we'll go forth and fight. And he ends up slaughtering thousands of protesters in the Hippodrome, the local sports arena, uh, where they've been protesting against his rule. So he stays in power, but he does it through a horrendously evil, tyrannical act of slaughtering civilians. Um, So this is one of the ways that Procopius lets you know that he's really a tyrant and a horrible uh, emperor, uh, is by making him act like a woman and making Theodora, his wife, act like a man. Um, And that story is so powerful, the way he narrates it, that throughout the coming centuries, whenever you want to make a politician look like he's really, really strong and in control and a powerful, upstanding guy, you can invent a scene where his wife tries to tell him what to do. Like, you really ought to cling to power and you really ought to go out and fight this one. And then he completely ignores her. And through the act of ignoring his wife's advice, he can look really strong and powerful, even if he's in fact giving up power or stepping down or uh, ignoring the situation and taking what would be the pacifist calm route. Yeah, you you give some examples of that um, in the book. Uh, it appears that um, Procopius's account of the Nika riots became a kind of template um, mm-hmm. for depicting, you know, the the strong ruler or the weak ruler you know, in via his relationship with his wife. Right. Um, Which is really sad for the women's historians because 
Yeah. People who want to study the history of women would love it if these speeches by the 11th and 12th century women were really showing that women speak in council, because it's our conception of gender in the 21st century that women who exercise power and authority are good. And there's a way that modern feminists are cheering on women in power. So they want to look back to the 11th century and say, yes, she told her husband she had a good speech in which she was talking. So when Leonora puts on her gender historian hat and points out, well, actually, all of these speeches are imitating Theodora and they function for the purpose of making the guy look good because he ignores her. Um, we don't know anything about what they said. Right? It's quite possible that these men and women did listen to each other and have conversations about politics after dinner. We have no evidence for that one way or the other. Right? Yeah, so, it, it, it always struck me how Theodora's um, actions in the, in, 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 as, as represented by Procopius are so often taken by modern readers as a kind of feminist moment, right? Yeah. Or even a, a feminist statement by Procopius, of all people. Right. When, in fact, we know he couldn't possibly have intended something like that, given right. what he writes about Theodora in his other works in The Secret History. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, the speech that she gives, I think, is sort of designed to undermine that reading because, you know, in a in a proper speech, I mean, the Byzantines loved their speeches, right? And they had right. all these rules for what you're supposed to say in what circumstances and, and who says what. And... And you're in a speech in that context, right? You would expect someone to give a whole bunch of good rational reasons right. for why you're supposed to do something. And she very emphatically doesn't do that. She just says basically, "I want it. I want it. I want it." Yes, <laughs> like right. That's, it's not it, a very persuasive speech of persuasion. <laughs> yeah, it's like I don't want to not be queen. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think that the speech itself makes, you know, he, he, Procopius, right, makes Theodora look like this willful creature rather than a rational advisor, right. which, you know, the circumstances would call for in a gender norm, you know, right, ideal. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, so we've talked about some masculinity and femininity and, um, or some aspects of them. And the, the fact that we can talk so much about masculinity indicates how, you know, the study of gender is not the same as women's history. Right. Um, so it appears that gender norms and sort of biological sex are not always linked in Byzantium, right? Like they can be dissociated and become sort of more free floating and used in a variety of contexts, right? So, yeah. Like, so what's analytically, what's the difference between, um, gender norms and conceptions of, sort of one's biological sex? Well, for the Byzantines had a pretty clear sense that there are some things that came with your body and your sex, sexuality um, by nature, right? And they had the set of normal expectations for what a male baby would be and what a female baby would be and how they would grow up. But it's, it's also really clear um, that they expected those natural proclivities to be subject to the moral authority and moral teaching and training of your character. So while a man was expected by virtue of his male body and physiognomy to be naturally inclined to be able to control his emotions and be rational, and women were expected to be naturally inclined to be flighty and unreliable and emotional and subject to emotion, 
nearly every text that talks about this is pointing out an exception where a man has become weak and therefore acting like a woman or a woman has been strong and therefore acting like a man. So basically every female saint is someone who's managed to act like a man. So to say that they're all exceptional is a little bit like saying everybody here is above average uh, because it's just about almost every Byzantine woman that we know anything about is someone who was exceptionally masculine, right? Right. which meant that they had the um, power and self-control to master their impulses and act in a rational manner and control their natural stuff. So there's this uh, discourse of what's natural, but we see it aside of the medical treatises, which are saying things about the humors and women being naturally wet and men being naturally dry, right? So there's the medical discourse. Everything else that's talking about the natural states of men and women is brought up and talked about in the violation of those norms, right? Um, So there's a clear sense that your performance, your enactment of your gender was in your hands. Um, based on your own strength of character and your moral and ethical training. So women, the fear about women was that they were could undermine men's self-control because they're so sexually attractive and they're flighty and they have no control, right? So it's not that women are expected to want sex any more than men are, but they have just no ability to control it. So they'll be always moving their hands around and flipping their hair and sort of moving in these suggestive ways. So the way that women showed that they were in control of themselves was through extreme decorum and a deportment in which they didn't move their hands and they always had their hair tied back and they didn't move their eyes around. They kept their eyes cast down. So this extremely restrained way in which I think nearly all medieval Roman women actually acted um, was a reaction to the assumption about their natural being, which was that they'd be flighty and all over the place. So um, women with their hair down are women who are unrestrained. Women with their hair tied back and covered are good women who are in control of themselves. Um, So there's a strange sense in which the normal way for a woman to act in this culture was to not act like a woman, right? (laughs) But to rather act in this restrained carefully controlled deportment that would help all the men around them keep their self-control by keeping the the sexually alluring stuff about the women sort of under wraps in a really literal sense. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in, in this regard, it's interesting you should mention this. In this regard, um, you know, if we can step back and look at Byzantium as a civilization, just on, on the whole, just generally, and compare it with others— it it does appear that there that women who did this in unusual circumstances could be accepted as performing mm-hmm. the virtues of men. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned some cases, so certainly in the in the world of you know saintly living, right, and asceticism, yeah. which is of course taking it way to the next level. Um, Sometimes, occasionally, also when you have empresses, um, you know, you 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 have to have this discourse of of masculinity because you need to have a masculine figure um, right. ruling the state, right? Um, but they, you know, Byzantium on, on on the whole, I I think I I'm just I'm, correct me if I'm wrong here, but they didn't take this to an extreme, and. Why do I say this? Because the extreme actually is expressed in the documentary record. Like 
we know of people who were precisely for what because of what you were saying they they were horrified at the presence of women Mm -hmm. um wouldn't touch them wouldn't want to talk to them like you know um the kind of reactions that today we would associate with religious fundamentalism um and these are very powerfully expressed in early ascetic texts, right, from Egypt uh, that the Byzantines had and kept and read. There are all these monks who won't touch a woman or won't talk to her or won't go near right. her because of this fear. But Byzantium did not, in consequence, you know, adopt that right. point of view and sort of seclude the women. They kind of did the opposite, and they, they had those men seclude themselves. Like, right? right like go live in a cave go, go live in the yeah, desert yeah, right. or right. Go, go live in a monastery behind these walls we're, we're not going to seclude our women for, for your sake <laughs> i think it's um clearly the that strain of really misogynistic set of literature is aimed at men who are trying to be celibate right so men who are trying to be monks who are saying that they're never going to have sex and the discourse that's written for them um, demonizes women in every conceivable way, trying to convince these guys that you know, the most, the horriblest, most awful thing you could possibly do is to see a woman or touch one. Um, and we've kept this literature, right? They kept it because there are still monasteries that were trying to have celibate men. Um, so, yes, and monastery libraries tend to survive better than other kinds of libraries. Um, so we have this literature well represented. Um, I don't think that was ever seen that ex- the extreme sense that, you know, all women are always awful um, is was the norm outside of monastic circles much at all. Now, in terms of whether the women were or were not sequestered, certainly only people who had enough money to hire somebody else to go to the market and do stuff and treat the, the aristocratic woman like some secluded princess could possibly even contemplate keeping their women secluded. Among the aristocracy in Constantinople and the other great cities, I think it's a really open question about whether the women did or did not ever get out of their house before they were married. Um, and there, there's some things where it indicates that you know, a woman who had never been seen before she was married would be extremely highly prized. Now, does that mean that people were, in fact, um, never seen? Um, So we have romances and stories that talk about the woman who's never been seen before her marriage. The text we talked about earlier, Kameniatis, when he's describing the assaults of the city of Thessaloniki, he says that women with no regard of modesty who hadn't even been married yet were outside of their houses and running around and screaming with their hair down, right? So he's presenting it as a horrible aspect of the sack of the city that young women were seen outside of their houses, which implies again that there's ideal that women were kept inside um, there's also, however, stories, Anna Komnini tells the story of some relatives who went to Constantinople on essentially a shopping trip. Um, so they were out and about. Um, it's not clear if they brought the unmarried women with them, but, you know, matrons of a respectable family could go to the big city, uh, upon occasion. Um, but I would be, I, it's one of those questions that I'm really not sure that I can give you a definitive answer on whether or not women were sequestered. Clearly, one of the reasons why uh, 
going to the marketplace was considered a low-class thing for women to do was because then they had to talk and shout and haggle over prices and speak loudly, whereas the proper ideal for an aristocratic woman was not to be heard as well as not to be seen. So having to go to the market is clearly associated with not being of the highest social class. And Yeah, yeah there are... Yeah. And there's also this problem because many of our texts are sort of recycling gender norms or mm-hmm. even situations of, you know, women's lives from antiquity. Right. Um, and like, they'll, you know, how they'll refer to the women's chambers in, in, right. in the home. And we're like, we're not actually even sure that Byzantine homes had separate women chamber, women's chambers. Exactly. And the people who do ancient Athens aren't even sure that the women there were sequestered. Women there. <laughs> okay. Right. So, yeah, they're. They're keeping up, you know, phrases they pick up Thucydides as sort of the normal way things are, but we have no idea about right. that. Um, yeah, so, so that's yeah. really tricky. Yeah, it's good that you mentioned Anna because I wanted to say I, I wanted to say a couple things about her because I think mm-hmm. Anna is this case where um, she's a 12th century historian who wrote the yeah. only history that was written in Greek, I think, before the middle of the 20th century. Yeah, and she was writing the history of her father, Alexius Komnenos. Yeah, like the first, you said she was like the first woman historian that we know of, right. you know, like ever. And I remember I first read her as an undergrad, and I have to say I was I was kind of baffled by the impression she was trying to give me, mm-hmm. as a per, a, what kind of a person she was. And I was really right. struck by the the emotive tone of the laments mm-hmm. everywhere. I, I just couldn't understand why every once in a while she would burst into lament for people who had died decades earlier. Yep. And yeah. I, I just, it was just very confusing. And I think she's one of these cases of um, gender miscommunication between her time and ours. Absolutely. And modern historians have read her in this very particular way. And I think for the first time you, you know, explained, I think, what is actually going on. I, I found it all very convincing. Could you could you say something about what the miscommunication was there? Sure. Uh, well, it's she knew that in her culture, history writing was something that men did. And she knew that her decision to make herself a history writer was going to raise a lot of eyebrows and make people think that she was arrogant and a rule breaker and completely full of herself and breaking a whole bunch of other rules. And she understood the gender culture of her society really well. And she constructed in her description of herself in her text. So she's writing the history of her father and she presents herself as the author and she explains who she is, that she's a princess and she's writing about her dad. Um, And in this description of herself, she will at the very beginning of the book and at the end of the book, she breaks out in tremendous histrionic lamentations, like just crying and saying it's the most horrible things on the planet that she suffered and it's completely over the top. And then throughout the text, every once in a while, she'll just seemingly randomly like bust a gasket and like the waterworks come on and she's crying and weeping and wailing. And it's really strange. And so for modern readers, it's really hard to figure out. And what's going on is that for the modern readers, we don't see history writing as something that particularly has to do with gender right now. I think most people would say, oh, she's a woman, she wrote a history. Okay. And they would go around and not necessarily read the text thinking, wow, it's really transgressive that she's writing history when she's a woman. Yeah. Right? Um, the people who read Anna in the 18th and 19th centuries had something like, like that. And they said, wow, it's strange 
that she's writing history as a woman. One guy said, well, we know she was more masculine than feminine because she wrote history. <laughs> he was right around 1850. <laughs> um, so what's going on is that um, there are some objections to women writing history that persist, but the cultures of gender have changed so that we're completely blind to everything Anna did to make herself look acceptable. So why is she crying? I think by making the lamentation at the beginning and the end of her book, she's bookending the whole thing within a funeral discourse. And the one place that Greek women and Roman women were expected to be loud was in funerals. Right? It's acceptable to cry and weep and wail and make their voices heard loudly and emphatically so long as it was in a funeral discourse. So that's that's one part of it. Also, when you see a poor old widow crying, you as the audience, we're supposed to say, oh, poor dear. Oh, the poor lady. She lost her husband. She lost her parents. She's so lonely, the poor dear. We're expected to have a response of condescension. Right and uh, pity and 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 feeling sorry for the poor old lady, right? Which is a tremendously powerful, humbling gesture for Anna. So Anna knows that the people reading her history among her contemporaries are going to think that she's arrogant and transgressive and completely full of herself, and that she's putting on airs by saying that she has the strength of character to master her feminine emotions to the degree that she can rationally explain men's actions. She can talk about what the men did in the battlefield in a way that lets us know who fought well and who fought badly. That's a tremendously aggrandizing thing that she's trying to do. So she says she's going to do that, and then she cries and weeps and wails so that we say, oh dear, I shouldn't be mad at her for being so aggressive and self-aggrandizing. I should feel sorry for her. It's a way of humbling herself before her readers. Also, another time when she starts crying <coughs> tremendously, she cries a lot, is when she's describing how she gathered the sources for doing her history. and Which means she's talking about things like interviewing old soldiers and talking with people who'd been in the battles and talking with old politicians and how she got the dispatches and even how she went with her father on, on campaign. And he, she witnessed some of these things herself. All of those activities mean that she was not in the women's quarters, right? Whether they were real and imagined, they had a lot of moral force in her society. She was out and about talking to men who were not in her family a lot to write this history. So when she's making this, again, very transgressive claim that would lead her contemporaries to think she was a bad woman because she was talking to strange men, she then says, oh, but I've suffered so much, and you don't know the things that I have suffered, and oh, my life, I may, I may, right? Um, and that lamentation, and she breaks it up, she splices her description of how she did her research five different times with these uh, talking about how isolated she is, and how her life has been so awful, and how lonely she is. And again, she knows that illogically it doesn't make any sense. Like, she knows that she's just said, oh, I went out and interviewed old soldiers. And then she says, oh, I haven't seen anybody in years, because I'm so isolated, right? And I'm just a poor old lonely woman. Uh, she knows that it doesn't make any sense. But she says it because the emotional response the audience is supposed to have is one of condescension and saying, oh, poor dear. All right, that might have worked for her contemporaries, 
I'm not entirely sure. Probably some of them, probably not for others. It certainly didn't for Joniati, as someone who wrote about her about 60 years after this. Um, but for people like Anthony Caldellas is a first-year student, it just seems weird. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this text to an undergraduate, she seems hysterical, and you ask, what's wrong with her? What happened to her? And the only thing you can figure out is she crying over her husband and her parents, all of whom died in ripe old age in the Middle Ages yeah. of natural causes. Like they all died in bed. Yeah. Um, so there's there's nothing that makes sense of her emotional display, right? particularly in contrast to texts like Kameniati's, where he's like stone cold, icy, you know, in control. And here she's just weeping and wailing. So what historians since the 18th century have done is begin to interpret, well, what is she crying about? What's upset with her? And they say, well, she's not really crying because she's sad. That doesn't make any sense. She must be crying because she's angry. Because why? Well, she never got to be empress. And we know since she wrote history, she must have been interested in politics, right? Because you know, historians are interested in politics and it's a manly thing to do. So she must have really, really wanted to be ruling the empire, right? And so, all this lamentation is where she just lets loose with her true feelings for the world. And that's a persuasive explanation, enough so that people then read her whole text with the story that she tried to, she wanted to murder her brother to become empress. Um, and they use that as an explanatory tool for explaining all sorts of stuff in the Alexiad itself. And then you read the text in translation and you think, oh, but there's all this evidence for her fight for, with her brother. If you go back to the Greek text, it's not there, right? There's there's no evidence that she's fighting with her brother or hated her brother in this text. I don't see any of it. Um, but you can, you, once you know the story that she wanted to become empress and wanted to murder her brother, it makes sense, in a sense, that she's crying because she's so angry, even though she never once in the text says that she's angry. And it's tremendously ironic, I find, that this the common modern reading of her is as an angry, politically motivated, aggrieved woman who is desperately trying to be powerful. Because every reason she did that, every time she was crying, she was trying to look humble. She was trying to look demure and like a poor old lady who couldn't harm a fly, right? So everything she did, and we've talked about the lamentations, but there are another of other strategies that she takes in the history to try to look like she's both a good woman and a good historian. And every single one of them not only don't work, but they backfire. So that in the 20th century, she's read as someone who is entirely motivated by power lust and the desire to be politically great. And again, the, the 20th century feminists are like, yeah, go Anna, a woman wants power, woohoo! You know, um, which so they're adding more support to this strange story right. in which she's this power-hungry, you know, fiend. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She she's been read as angry and bitter, as if the text is a very straightforward and transparent, you know, declaration mm -hmm. of her emotional state. Right. Rather than someone who's strategically using gender yes. norms in order to elicit consolation rather than criticism for the fact that she's transgressing right um, a norm that had probably never been violated in this way before um, right yeah yeah no I, I I found that a very very persuasive reading yeah and and I should and say that also, you, you've written a separate yeah. book on Anna where where all of this is laid out uh, in, right. in detail yeah yeah it, it gets to me too when the, the modern historians they'll see 
different other Byzantine texts as being very calculated and arch with their rhetoric. But Anna's text is read as if she had absolutely no control over her emotions as that she was writing, right? Yeah. So she goes in this lamentation because, because she's a hysterical woman, yeah. right? Who can't keep her anger under control. So there's that, that kernel of the ancient prejudice that women can't control their emotions and are hysterical is still around in the 21st centuries right? when people say, oh, but, you know, she just, that's just how she felt, right? Yeah, She's yeah, a rhetorician. Yeah. No word in that text got there because she didn't think about it and wasn't in control of what she was trying to say. Yeah, right? it's, so she's very, trying it's very to precise. It. Whereas the Kameniati's manipulation, right? He's trying to make us think that he's really strong and come off strong um, and pity these other people. That works for us. And I think it's because we still have the sense that men should be in control of their emotions. And there's enough of that sort of John Wayne ethic in our society that you can read that text and more or less get, oh, yeah, he's trying to act strong. Whereas um, it's different so that when Anna is crying, we don't feel sorry for her. but We think she must be angry. But then we circle back to, oh, but she's a hysterical woman who's not in control of her writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's yeah, that, that's exactly right. I, I, I think I've read enough Byzantine scholarship that I, I know how quick the instinct is to see everything as strategic and rhetorical. Mm -hmm. um, but Anna has sort of been ex exempted from that. Right. Um, so right. I I had thought that we might also talk about eunuchs, um, mm -hmm. which are somewhat separate. Or no, they're not separate. You do talk about them in the book, but I'm thinking now that actually I might want to have a separate conversation on eunuchs. Absolutely. Um, yeah, just because they, in, in Byzantine society at least, they, they can kind of occupy this kind of separate uh, category. Um, so I just wanted to say that you do talk about them in the book, uh, but I wanted to um, um, just move on to some um, other questions uh, so that we sure. don't go too long. Um, and I wanted to um, sort of raise a, uh, so the, the, the last question that I had sent you, which I know, now I know this is a very difficult question, and I've sort of struggled with this myself, but I was kind of wondering if you had any insights, um, which is specifically how... You know, historical analysis and explanation, like when we're trying to ex understand a society or explain a set of events, mm -hmm. we have well-developed and entrenched models that, you know, for economics and for politics and for war and all of this. And we, we, we know how to kind of integrate these in order to explain what was going on in a society. But gender analysis has is still kind of on the side of all that. And it, it hasn't, perhaps because it's a it's a more recent um, theoretical model, or you know, there's maybe the politics attached to it. It hasn't, right. I think, been integrated that well, so that when we're writing history, we feel that mm -hmm. that we also need to, you know, engage in that kind of analysis to explain what was going on. Right? Are there? Like what, what? What would you say are the best prospects for using uh, analysis of gender norms and, and gender in society to understand um, aspects of Byzantine history or society that we that we haven't done yet? I think it's um, it has not yet been done because I think it's still quite new and um, because of the initial confusion that it's an outgrowth of women's history or a substitute for women's history. 
people who aren't particularly interested in women feel that it's fine to just completely ignore it, even though I think most of the advances in gender history have to do with Byzantine masculinity, right? or at least a lot of them do. Um, in terms of how it can actually help inform the field and change our understanding of Byzantine society, I see a gender understanding as absolutely critical for reading all of our medieval histories, right, to some more than others. But the histories that were written in Greek and the Middle Ages about what happened are in many ways telling stories about the good and bad behavior of men and women as men and women, particularly the good and bad behavior of men as soldiers and as emperors. And as we analyze our histories in light of our growing and increasingly more sophisticated understanding of Byzantine gender, that's going to change our understanding of what happened. So, you know, you mentioned my book on Anna and her history. I think I've shown to my satisfaction, although not to everyone's, that she didn't really want to murder her brother. And therefore, an entire event that's in our narrative of what happened in the Byzantine Empire, I think should be excised. Right? If you read any history book on Byzantium, one of the big things that happened in the early 12th century was that Anna tried to have a coup in which she tried to replace her brother with her husband. Um, that didn't happen. Right? So that's where the basic narrative of events can be affected by a gender reading of the history. And much more in more subtle ways than that, when we're reading about the course of, of the battles or military campaigns, when we begin to understand how the historian is using the military events to depict the good or bad character of the men in terms of their uh, gender display and development, we'll be able to understand the narratives of what happened in, in a much better way. Um, I also think that this is interwoven to so many other aspects of Byzantine society in terms of how everything about the display and depiction of, of architecture in a church building, right, ha is laden with uh, ideas of good and bad masculine beha feminine behavior in all the depictions of that. So certainly you know, the art historians and the architectural historians are working on beginning to have a gendered reading of our material culture that is going to be, I think, revelatory for that. Um, and that's sort of the material aspects of Disney society. I think we'll also be able to understand our documents from which we derive our economic um, ideas can uh, be read in such a way as we to help us elucidate um, the interplay of men and women in those documents. And that's going to help us understand what we, we don't have a lot of information about the society. You know, we really don't have huge archives of things. So the few texts that we do have we need to read uh, very carefully. And I think um, that gender can give us a lens for understanding what's going on in them. That's, that's just will allow us to be more true when we try to assess what was going on. Yeah. And, and possibly, you know, or certainly beyond even the representation of events in texts, uh, it's very likely that uh, it's not just the historians who are writing about the battles, but the soldiers who are in them mm -hmm. uh, that are, you know, I mean, all all of these men and women are trying to live up to those right. norms or, or, or to, to subvert them. But in any case, in relation to them and and as, as we've we've talked about in, in, in this discussion, there's so many ways in which we misunderstand Byzantine gender norms. 
um, right. that further research on them might actually clarify some of this behavior that otherwise right. would appear odd. Right. Yeah. Strange. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I uh, think that we have a, a tremendous a lot to learn as we read reread the historians and the other normative texts, trying to understand how men were supposed to act. You know. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest changes I think is going to happen when we have a real understanding of Byzantine masculinity that's used to read our military texts. And I think that has the potential to change the fundamental narrative of what we think happened in the empire pretty significantly. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one last question. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a bit off topic. Uh, I would just um, like to ask you to recommend a couple of books that are that are not on Byzantium, but that you have found to be very good for thinking with, or that uh, you know you found fascinating. And you know, I think uh, li- listeners will 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 be always interested in re- good book recommendations. Yeah, um, I think one of the quite different from Byzantium, but that's something that really helped me think about using gender in history, is a book by Bethany Morton that's called Serving God and Walmart, which is a history of the Walmart uh, Corporation and the southeastern United States, um, which is just very revelatory for understanding people who are different uh, from myself. um, And she does a way of a very respectful and um, appropriately... um, caring uh, depiction of people from different kinds of uh, societies and with different values and trying to understand their motivations through thinking about their ideas and ideals of gender. So that's that's really fun, serving God in Walmart. And then just a really fascinating th- uh, book on comparison and historical analysis and um, thinking about the interplay of past historians and current historians is Jonathan Z. Smith's Drudgery Divine, which is on um, comparison of uh, histories of Jesus with uh, ancient Near Eastern mystery religions. Um, And that's just a a wonderfully thought-provoking read. So those are my two suggestions for you. Excellent. Um, Thank you. Um, I, sure. I, I've, I've read The Smiths. I, I look forward to reading about Walmart. Yeah, um, good fun. All right. Well, right. thank you so much, Leonora. It's, it's been a great pleasure. Sure. Thanks. And, and when, you, when you're done with your next project, uh, I look forward to doing it again. All right. Great. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.